Welcome back to Crack On, the podcast that explores times in life where we just had to get on with it and search for the silver lining, or as I like to call it, finding the crack in cracking on. This week's guest is legendary Irish DJ and broadcaster, one of the most recognisable voices on TV and radio. It's Dave Fanning. I had attempted an interview with Dave a few weeks ago and my internet failed me, so I'm so glad he gave me another chance and he was such a joy to interview. This is a unique episode to say the least. We cover everything from interviews with legendary musicians and film stars to cracking on with daily procrastination. I hope you enjoy. Okay, so welcome to Crack On, Dave Fanning. Um, well, it's good to be here. I'm right. How are you? Thank you for doing this. I mean, I'm I'm hoping that we'll get to actually do it this time because obviously we had a bit of a hiccup with my internet the first time round. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'll tell you one thing. If you were looking for help to fix that, you'd be looking at the wrong person here. <laughs> well, actually, I was like so nervous that it would happen again that I got Sky out and everything. So I was like, this is important. I run a successful podcast from very here. Very <laughs> glad to hear that. Good. So how are you? How are you, how are you keeping? Good. Uh, I'm keeping very good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, despite not winning the lottery yet, I'm fine. Brilliant. Okay. Yeah. Well, it can happen. Yeah. I mean, I um, I would say you think this is like all a load of rubbish, but I carry a, a green crystal. It's called like Aventurine, I think is the name. And I keep it in my wallet. And I think that mm-hmm. is going to bring me money one yeah. day. Listen, I don't think anything is anything. Whatever turns you on, that's fine by me. <laughs> but the big thing is, have you won the lottery yet? No. Okay, but can I just tell you, when I first got this crystal, I got tax back that very week. I think that's saying something. That's a, it's a good start. It yeah. is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, you know, we're kind of, we're getting there, maybe in a yeah. year or two. Yeah. yeah. Um. Okay, so the, I don't know how much you know about the podcast, but anyway, we'll... <laughs> I know. Well, look, it's fine. You'll be well able. But basically, the concept of the podcast is times in life where we just had to get on with it, you know, uh, faced a hurdle or a bit of a hardship and found the silver lining or what I like to call finding the crack in cracking on. So I like to ask my guests two or three examples of times in life where they had to, you know, find the positives. You can take a few minutes um, and they can be as kind of trivial or as deep as you would like them to be. It's completely up to you what you share. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, when okay. you're ready. <laughs> yeah, but you just, I mean, like, what will I do? Will I just say a time in life that I had to crack on and I did? Is that it? Yeah, like it can it can literally be big or small. Some of the examples we've got are like, you know, overcoming anxiety or it's also things like in a job, like a job that you worked that you hated, but the good thing that came out of it, you know, it, there's no wrong answer. Well, my life has been so blessed. I've never had to um, come across <laughs> the, like a, a hurdle like that. No, let me think. Um, yeah, I mean, I would, that would be like it's trivial compared to most people. Or certainly any kind of hardship that people might have had in their lives. This isn't a hardship thing, but it was a thing of I'm in so far and I'm in so deep and I may have lied to get here that the least I can do is crack on. So therefore I had to do it, which is... Um, a ridiculously trivial thing, really. But uh, in um, in the 1980s, which is a long, long time ago, I did about four different program series on television. I started doing that in about 84 direction. And um, the one was about jobs. One was quiz on TV. One was another one like that. One was an arts show and all the rest. But every single one of those programs was recorded, which means you do it, say, you go in on a Tuesday afternoon and you spend about four hours doing an airline program or a half-hour program, whatever it is, and then any mistakes can be fixed up, any little glitches can be taken out and everything can be as good as it should be and then the program goes out two days later and nobody knows the difference and it's fine. And also, if you make a mistake or if the cameraman makes a mistake or if somebody makes a mistake and you have to kind of do it again, it doesn't matter really because you just do it again and you're expected to take a bit more time. The problem is that live TV is different. And in other words, if it's a live one hour program, that takes an hour because everything is live. And the problem with that is, is that for some reason, somebody got on to somebody and I landed this gig as um, the presenter of the only music program 
well, kind of current music or rock music program at the time that was on television in the UK and it was on Channel 4 and it was called Rock Steady and they asked me would I present it and you can't say no because, to quote Shakespeare, there is a tide in the affairs of Ben which when taken at the flood leads on to fortune and therefore if you get an opportunity you've got to go for the next big thing especially if it's put on front of you on the plate. So I said yeah but I never told them I hadn't done live TV and they might they mightn't have given it to me if I hadn't. So I was thinking, I just got to do this. It doesn't matter. It'll just be whatever you know. Now it's a completely different thing. And the reason why this is going on so long is because I remember in two thousand and fourteen, on the radio, I was interviewing Dermot O'Leary of X Factor, etc. Fame. He had just brought out his autobiography, and he was trying to say like he did Saturday morning TV kids program, whatever it was. I don't know. And there was about five of them, and it's all very messy and sloppy, and there's gloop coming down on people, and it's all mad. So it didn't really matter if you were a bit loose and didn't get hit the marks or anything like that but he said he was absolutely terrified out of his tiny mind because it was live TV and he sat in front of me and said have you any idea like you've no idea how scary that is you've no idea and I was just thinking will I tell him will I not no okay I didn't so go back then to 1990 and I had to do the first thing and in the afternoon I spent the day in the Albert Hall and I was interviewing Eric Clapton and that was fine because that's recorded as well. They do a 20-minute interview and they just show five minutes of the TV that night. But the TV that night was coming from the Albert Hall but my part of the programme was was a second guy in a studio over in London and we went all over Britain to various places but this first one, it was Albert Hall. And Eric Clapton at the time was very famous for taking over the month of January at the Albert Hall and literally playing 30 nights. And he would sell it out all the time. Like at about, I don't know, the Albert Hall isn't nearly as big as you think it is. It's just very prestigious. So he, he, he would just take up the, the whole thing. And rather than play to 200,000 people, he did it over 30 nights. And it was pretty cool if you're a fan. But that stage, Eric Clapton was kind of dull. Anyway, point about it is, <laughs> is that for the very beginning, I had to walk down the whole of the Albert Hall, past everybody sitting down saying, who's this Egypt? With a camera. Oh my God, so wait, it was a live audience as well as just being broadcast live. <gasps> yeah, it was broadcast live to like my f- people back in Ireland who saw me doing our, the live thing for the first time. And I had to go like blah, blah, blah and say what's on the programme and a menu and blah, blah, blah and this is it. And blah, blah. But first, of course, we're here live at the Albert Hall because uh, here he is with his band, Eric Clapton. And there's Eric on stage with a guitar and I'm seeing him as I'm walking towards the stage going, who the hell is this moron? Okay, yeah, well, we, we, this is the ninth of 30 nights. We said we'd do this. It's going live on TV, three of the numbers to start off their new rock show or whatever. So we'll do it. You know, sure, why not? So I had to make sure I got that right and had to do it timed to a T and had to kind of go exactly where I was going. As the camera went that way, I had to go this way towards Eric Clapton and say, here he is, Eric Clapton. And I had never done that before, anything like that at all. Now, that was the point of, do I tell them now? I'll tell you the worst thing about that was, though, when you get these sheets, like a call sheet or whatever, and it's about 50 pages long of every song and every camera angle and every everything that's going to do and all that. But the first two pages have the 28 to 35 people working on the programme and all their names. Now, in those days, there was no mobile phone, but there would be now. But it was just like, you know, like producer, uh, researcher, blah, 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 and all these names. And at the top, underlined, presenter, Dave Fanning. Like, I went, I can't do this. I just cannot do this. I mean, I, I, I think I should tell them now. I lied. I mean, I didn't lie. They never asked me. Uh, yeah, I've done five years of TV, but I've never done live TV. Except maybe I was interviewed on something once or twice, but that's like this. You just waffle away. You don't have to think of anything. But um, so I had to do this. Like, that was baptism by fire. So I'll tell you, Dermot O'Leary, I have a better story <laughs> than you do. That's where you, I had to crack on, and I did. Oh, my God, that is amazing. Okay, so the show was what, a weekly thing? or Yeah, it was 1990 to 92 we did two series of a program called Rock Steady I mean we did it from everywhere around England I had a great time in fact we even did one live from Boston now that was one wow. where I had to crack on walking down a street with this one at two o'clock on a sunny afternoon and it's piss and rain in London which is where the program is going out live and I have to go blah 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 and I walk into a club and JJ Cale is playing there and I sit down with JJ Cale first to, well he didn't do it best thing I've ever I come across. I don't know, you probably don't know J.J. Cale, but he's just the coolest and he's the king of laid back music, the Tulsa sound and all that. But he he um, he he was supposed to do an interview as well for the programme. The best excuse I've ever come across anybody for not doing an interview. So like we'd come all the way to Boston, about 50 of us on this TV programme to do it live for England or whatever. And he wouldn't do the interview, but it didn't really matter. But the reason he didn't want to do the interview is why um, I don't want to. 
I thought that's a, that's a brilliant thing. I mean, like, never thought of that. So anyway, he didn't do the interview, but he, anyway, he, he did the thing on stage. And that one was easy because I didn't care about that, but, uh, that stage. But when it's a really hot day in Boston and you're walking down the street and you know that everybody who you're playing to is in a freezing cold night in London, it's kind of bizarre. But anyway, the Eric Clapton one was one where I did have to crack on because it was do or die. And I hated every second of it. <laughs> and when did it start to get easier? Like... Well, like anything else, all you got to do is do something twice and you can do it 2000 times. I mean, like I've jumped out of a plane once. I'm never going to do it twice. OK, that's that's that, that's a bad example. But um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, once you do something, it doesn't, I'll tell you, one of the best things is when you make a bit of a fool of yourself, uh, then it just doesn't matter anymore because the world actually doesn't stop turning. So it's actually kind of, who, who gives a damn. And then all you got to do is be yourself. And also, like, I mean, I had done. 13, hour, 13 years of radio at that stage. It was all live. But just camera and having to hit marks and write time was just a bit different. And especially with two and a half or however the Albert Hall takes. I don't know. It's not it, uh, The Albert Hall doesn't take as many people as you think. I don't know how many thousands get in there. But anyway, um, mm. but like big prestigious venue in London. Here we are. And then we did two years of that series. Then we did another series called Friday at the Dome. And um, that was the same thing. It was live as well. That was in... Um, that wasn't Kentish Town, whatever you call the place, um, where a lot of Irish used to hang out, actually, oddly enough, even though that was a Channel 4 programme. So, like, all those were live, too. We had three stages doing live bands all the time and interviews and things. And at that stage, it just didn't matter because I cracked on, if you like, on that first mm-hmm. one, and that got me to all the other ones. So it never mattered anymore. It was that some wild is things. amazing. Oh, my mm-hmm. God. So what is your favourite show that you've done? I mean, is it, like, the movies or...? Funny you should say that because I got 20 television programmes or so here. The movie show was my favourite because that was mine. I did it and I was the one who got it going and with another girl, Anita Nataro. And it was brilliant that we actually was able to get it up and running very quickly. We only had about three weeks to get the first one. And after about second year, and we did over 400 programmes. It was over 40 programmes a year for 10 years. It was just the best thing because it really worked out really well. We knew how to get a half an hour. In fact, one year I went for 45 minutes and got it and realised maybe that's too much. Actually, half an hour is enough. And we really knew how to be informative and entertaining. And all it was was I was just going to movies every day of the week. They put on special. Like I'd be in the Savoy in Dublin, 500 seats, and I'd be the only one at it. Okay, Charlie, you can start it now. That kind of stuff. And I saw movies every morning and that was going to work. You know, like, you know, the old Sunday night thing of oh god there's a week of school coming up ahead mm-hmm. I still have that in some ways but like what was I giving out about I was getting up the next morning to go watch a movie it was brilliant so and also I went to London I'd say I went every single week for 10 years to London um, and like you know just went in 7 in the morning and was home by 4 in the afternoon to sit with a famous rock star and have a, a movie star and have a cup of tea and like it was the simplest thing in the world and, you know fantastic and you bring that interview home stick it to the programme review some movies and it was great so the movie show is the one that I'm most proud of because it really worked I thought it, it mm. just worked and we got into a groove and it kept going and it was great that is amazing. Okay, so is there any, is there anyone that you interviewed, you know, like musician, actor, whoever, who the interview just did not go the way you anticipated? Do you know, the really funny thing is, first of all, the movie interviews are all um, junkets. So like 90% of them are anyway. And you really don't get a long time. You get, nowadays it's even less, but you get about 15 minutes max, maybe, you know, that'd be about max. And then as you're walking out of the room, Japan is coming in and you're being handed your tapes to go home kind of thing. It's all a little bit impersonal. And if you don't spend the first 40% talking about the current movie that they're trying to sell, then, you know, you realise you've got to scratch their back and, you know, you'll keep mm-hmm. getting the issues. You have to talk, about, even if you'd much rather talk about something else, you know, mm-hmm. um, because the movie was crap. But, uh, you know, it's, um, no, like, it was just, in terms of interviews, um, it's surprising. Like, I mean, you get it two or three hours with the rock people and you might be a whole afternoon with them or whatever, and that was much better. Uh, but, no, mostly they know what they're there for. They do the interview and it's usually pretty good. And I'm always was very happy with it. The, the only thing you had to do yourself, and it was very easy to crack on in an interview if you had done this, because you have to do it, is have your homework done. Because mm. once, once the interview starts, like you'd be up at the 92nd floor of some big thing in New York and the guy says, oh, you want a radio mic? Oh, that's down in the van. It's like, seriously? Like, you know, you bring all the stuff with you. And like, once the interview starts, there shouldn't be any messing around because 
the famous rock star or whatever is going to have to go and you can't be messing. So, you know, it's fine. It doesn't matter if you spend four hours dressed in the room and moving lamps and flowers and all that. That's fine. But once the interview starts, that's it. So, no, I mean, it mostly went very well. And oddly, somebody I knew and liked quite well would be one interview that I thought could have gone a bit better. And that of all people was Kirsty McCall because I knew her because she was in Dublin a bit with Steve Lillywhite, her husband, and he was producing you too. And he was, she was here quite a bit. And it was odd, I kind of knew her. But at the interview, sometimes I don't know what happened because compared to like the other 400, it just didn't seem to go that way. Also, um, the guy next door, um, who I never found him next door at all, I didn't particularly like him, was um, Brian Adams. I, I, I found him a bit... Um, slightly offhand or slightly rude. But I mean, you know, it doesn't matter. Most interviews go very well. Yeah, they really do. It's quite easy. That's good. That's mm. great. Like, yeah. and OK, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is an old answer. But I remember reading at some point that the person you were most excited to meet was Joni Mitchell. Is that still right? Um. Yes. That. Well, I mean, the 1970s solo wise, there were two male uh, David Bowie, so um, female Joni Mitchell. Um, not so much excited to meet her. It was just, you've no idea like what she meant to me in the 1970s. And I'm the youngest of six, so I was very early into her early albums, the same with Dylan and all of those people. So I knew them all backwards. And Joni Mitchell didn't release albums every year. She released her diary and put music to them. And they were really personal. And like she was the ultimate singer-songwriter. And then the music got really sophisticated for the next bunch of albums. And she used jazz kind of tunings and that. And she's just she's very different she's also an acquired taste I do understand that people mightn't like her but she's just brilliant and she did nothing from 87 onwards no sorry from um, 77 onwards in terms of interviews and we had this thing on the radio which was kind of stupid it was Ian Wilson the producer like we only did live interviews we never recorded an interview so I mean my point was hold on if John Lennon is in on Saturday and Sunday we're not going to do an interview with him this kind of thing like um, anyway we just for some reason that's the way we did it and there was a feel to the programme and radio because of that anyway point is that I was doing a programme and she was coming to Dublin to play the only time she was ever in Dublin and we sent out a note to her tell would she come for an interview and she said, yeah. And I said, don't be ridiculous. She didn't say yes. She hasn't done one in five years kind of thing. And I don't know why she said yeah. There was no real reason. So we sent in a car for her and flowers and all this. And she came out and I was even saying it like, uh, I think, you know, we might have Johnny Mitchell on the programme tonight because, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. And Mark Cagney walked in the door having just finished. Like, what are you doing saying things like that? Like, that's not going to happen. And as he was saying it, the door opened. He had to get out of the way. And it was Johnny Mitchell. It was brilliant. It was like, get out, Cagney. Here we go now. So, yeah, I was very nervous with Johnny Mitchell. She, I couldn't believe she was just sitting in front of me. It was just the weirdest thing. And it was one of the first times I was ever kind of a bit starstruck to the point. Well, it's very easy if you're starstruck at the radio. Just play another record. So I played a record and when that record was over, we just talked for an hour and a half and it was brilliant. And yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, like, obviously the bigger the star or somebody that means something to me. Like I, I was in a hotel room in uh, in Rome in 2001 in the same room for 90 minutes with Bob Dylan. So I can die happy, you know. That is incredible. Yeah. That is so, so great. Um, okay, so... Moving on to our second example, I'll give you a few minutes if you have anything that, you know, um, again, big or small, a time in life where you just, you find the good in like a, a difficult situation or you had to overcome it. Well, do you know something it's funny about that, Marie? It happens like that. It happens on a regular basis. It's more little ones all the time. Yeah. It's like sometimes decisions made about your career, for instance, by those who just do it at the stroke of a pen. And you just have to grit your teeth and go on. Like, I don't agree that they should have done this or that or the other. And there's not much you can do about it. Because, like, you know, also you're on a contract. It's not like you're on a pension. It's not like you're on a safe job. It, can, it mightn't be, be renewed. You know they're doing the wrong thing. You know they shouldn't have done that. You know that everybody in any organisation gives out about management at some point. But you just have to keep it going, you know. So there'll be a lot of little ones like that that I think, you know, the things didn't happen that I would have liked to have happened, but cheaper, you know, Join the very long queue for that one, Mr. Benning. Mm -hmm. you know. The other side of that would be, you know, that there's never been one day in my life that I regretted having to go to work. I loved every single second and continue to do so, no question. Absolutely mm -hmm. love it. And I should be looking at the good sides more than any bad sides. Mm -hmm. So 
what I mean? Like, people don't necessarily always do that. I mean, I always look at the bright side of life. Yeah, but there's a bit of a but there sometimes too, you know, like I wouldn't have minded getting that or doing that. I mean, allowed to do this or that or the other. No, I mean, you know, I look at other people too and I realise, you know, just how incredibly kind of lucky I've been because people often used to say, don't make your job your hobby. Sorry, don't make your hobby your job. Well, do. Because or there's a seven-year itch, you get bored after seven years. I'll tell you, I've had five or six, seven years and give me another seven. No problem at all. So I haven't had something where I've had to really kind of keep going. I haven't had anything really bad happen. So it'll all happen in all all at once, I'd say, pretty yeah. shortly. <laughs> Probably will anyway. Um, okay, so I have like a bit of a, a lightning round. Um, it, a lightning round? Yeah, okay. well, like, I mean, it doesn't have to be that fast, but it's just like... Yeah. Fun, crack-based questions, okay? hmm Okay, so your idea of crack. So it can be a night out or a night in or... Yeah, I mean, well, I do like... I, I, okay, the first thing is, when it comes to the 1st of January every year, there's only one given. There's only one thing I know will be absolutely fantastic in the year ahead. It's a guarantee and it has never let me down. And that's the last 16, the last eight or the last four of the European Champions League. Because the home and away matches of those in particular, in other words, the second part, there's always something there. And the biggest one this year was um, the match with uh, Manchester City and um, uh, PSG, where City were 1-0 down and then PSG won 2 uh, and Sorry, City were 1-0 down, yeah, and then they got up to 2-1 and then the, the return leg wasn't nearly as good because PSG were useless but the point is, it's just when a match is so good, when it's something really exciting that to me is the one of the best things ever. The thing about that is though, the football during the pandemic, they're selling us short, it's the best example I've ever come across of a half a loaf is better than no bread I still love it, it's great, but it's only a half a loaf with no crowd, it's a rip-off it's just a rip-off, I hate it, but it's still brilliant so that's one of the things that I would say is one thing I can always rely on, but the biggest crack thing of all without a doubt um, is just standing in a pub with a pint in your hand and maybe a bit of it spills because people are enjoying the band so much that I'm looking at on stage a band on stage <laughs> a band on stage that works a band on stage that's really good sometimes when something really happens when it all clicks like I mean people have often asked me what's my favourite gig of all time and I don't know but maybe 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 it's in a place that then became um a, a, a children's play place and now it's a block of flats and it's not anywhere exotic in the world it's in Dunleary in County Dublin it's called the Top Hat and at the Top Hat in 1980 two years after I'd seen them in Trinity College with one of the most famous gigs ever and I must say I didn't think it was very good at all but then I saw them in 1980 and it was just absolutely perfect because I caught them exactly at the point when they were just the best band around and that was The Clash. They were just releasing London Calling and it was just really special. It was just like that's crack with a capital C. You just could not possibly get better than that on any level. Also, like there'd be some movies like that can really move you. Like I had to do a thing um, at the IF, IF, the Irish Film Centre, the IFC about two years ago and you had to, they asked people to pick a movie They'd get the movie for you. And then you had to get up and talk about it to the crowd who went in beforehand. So I gave them three in terms of, they said, look, if there's one scene in particular in the movie, uh, Secrets of Lies from the 90s. Um, obviously, Nashville would be probably my favourite movie from the 70s. And um, But in terms of scenes, the, the prime Miss Jean Brody from 1969, there's one scene in that. Think, there's one scene in Secrets of Lies. But I picked The Man, the man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And the man who shot Liberty Valance, and they got a new copy of it, and it was fantastic. I'd seen it about only seven or eight times, but I'd never seen it on the big screen because I was only a kid watching it as a cowboy. And it was just James Stewart up against um, uh, Lee Marvin and John Wayne. There's a scene in a restaurant or in a steakhouse where he gets tripped up. But anyway, it's a lot. And it's just one of the coolest things ever. It's just fantastic. So, therefore, like, that's the three things. Like, you know, I love sort of the last bits of Europe when there's a home and away, and maybe there's an hour left in the second match, and whatever team is losing has to do whatever they have to do. And there's always great football. There's always one match that stands out. And the music is the same thing. You can't be the biggest thing of all. In fact, the biggest crack you can possibly have is standing watching a band with your pint spilling a little bit as I call it you know and that just watching in there it doesn't have to be in a tiny place but it kind of helps I mean sorry it doesn't have to be in a pub but if it's outdoors in a nice field or if it happens to be in a 10,000 seater that can be just as good and then the other one is um is uh, the movies yeah the movies like just a great movie or a great scene that just makes the hair stand on the back of your neck yeah 
Okay, I'll have to add those films to my list because I, I, I've never seen oh, one of I'll them. You, that, that's funny you should say that because um, it's like Joni Mitchell. I mean, like she is an acquired taste and I was there for, like there's a lot to be said for being there for something as opposed to going back to listen to it. And it's just, you, you almost can't um, recreate. Like I was in the Beatles fan club at the age of seven when fans because wow. I had all these other brothers who like I mean I, I was a veteran of music before the Beatles and once the Beatles came along they just completely changed my life so for 7 to 15 or whatever long they lasted they only lasted for 7 or 8 years um, and so I, that's the most important piece of music like obviously the Beatles is the greatest thing ever so but like I mean all that, well, that's because I was there now looking back on it I'm sure I could like it but you know, I look back on it because I was there and therefore absolutely love it so you can't, mm. you, can't you can't get better than that so that's it really you know uh, what's your favourite Beatles album? Well, I mean, like a lot of people say Abbey Road, which I think is not one of my favourites at all. I, I'm kind of mystified by that. Um, the White Album has always been my favourite album. But I mean, if anybody wants to say that the changes that Rubber Soul made right to Revolver just changed music forever, I'd go that to Revolver. So I really don't. Obviously, Sgt. Peppers is the most famous as well in the middle of all that. So I've nearly mentioned them all. But um I don't know, really. It's, I, I don't see it that way, but I suppose the White Album. Yeah, the White Album. Okay, I'll take that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, my next question is a habit you can't crack. A habit I can't crack. Oh, there's the word crack. I see right now I get <laughs> a habit I can't crack. But you're assuming it might be something that I'm ashamed of or something that I don't want to do and that I would love to be able to stop doing it. But... um uh, you know, it could easily be a habit I can't crack but don't want to. But no, I don't yeah. know. Like, I eat too much chocolate. That's one thing for sure. And like, I like yeah. kind of what I would call cheap chocolate. I don't like very fancy chocolates or dark chocolate or anything. And that is something that I probably should do a bit less of. Um, I can't really think of anything. A habit that I can't crack. Wow. Um, uh, yeah, laziness. I mean, like the last year has been really, and that is a habit. I thought, you know, it's not that I knew this whole thing was going to last for a year, but you could see ourselves settling in for three months at a time. The amount of things that I want to do and have not done. And so I must be lazy. I, that's what it must be. That must be the definition of it. And I'll have to accept that if somebody says I am. It is astonishing because like, it's amazing how, People, you know, what they want more than anything, most people, is like, I'd love a holiday. I'd love to go to the sun or whatever. I'd love just to do more good work. I love doing the work and then when it, it is good and it comes out. And I haven't done as much work in the last year as I could easily probably have done. And that is probably a habit or, you know, a trait that really I could do with fixing because mm. I would feel better if I do the work and I'm not doing it. So there, there, there you are. Okay, I mean, so I'm not here to sleep what are some of the things? Because sometimes, I mean, I, my trick is to just talk it into existence. So, I mean, even this podcast, for example, I talked about it loads last year and then I was like, oh, actually people now think I'm going to do this. So I have to do it. Well, that goes back to my Eric Clapton the other day. I said I'll do this program on TV and didn't tell them I can't do live. Anyway, yeah, um, exactly. yeah I mean, the thing is that, uh, yeah, on that level, I mean, I don't know. Um you know, I, I, I don't, I, I, like, for instance, the podcast, now there's one. If one more person tells me, why aren't you doing a podcast? I said, I will, and I will. I'm going to get it together. I'll do something in some way or other, if only just to do it. But like, that's one of the things I should have done over the last year. And I was genuinely, I would have thought, in February 2020, I'll have this by the end of March, it'll be done. And now, 12 months later, I haven't done a thing. But I will do it. I will do it. Maybe that's... Yeah. Maybe that's the problem, promising myself that I will do something and then doing nothing about it. <laughs> well, yeah, isn't it the worst? Like if I set myself like if I wake up in the morning and I'm like, OK, I'm going to do a run today and then I don't run. I feel worse than if I had just said I'm not going to run today. Oh, you know? God, absolutely. <laughs> but I mean, I'm not I'm like that's that you're in the hapney place. I'm an expert at that kind of thing. I'm so used <laughs> to saying I will do something and not doing it that it's just part of what I am. It's part of who I am. It's part of what I don't do, which is terrible because I should just do it. There are uh, there's no doubt about it. Like, I mean, there's certain things I, between 19, like I was on 2FM on, you know, between whatever it was, 79 and throughout the 1980s, 
I was the kind of rock guy or whatever you call it for the Irish Times. So I had to get a thousand words minimum done a week and then other special articles as well. And the only time you ever did them was when you just had to do them because, mm-hmm. the, you know, deadlines and all that. And I really did work to deadlines and I really was stupid on that level. And then I gave that up to do script for the movie show because it was more difficult to do script for that because you were marrying it to pictures and whatever and all that. But the point is that, like, I had to do those things. Had to, had to, had to, because my life depended on it. Because the promise I had made, which is I will do these gigs, um, well, then you'll have to do them, uh, was made. Now, the only other promises I'm making are to myself. And I'm allowed to break those, it seems, because, why? <laughs> yeah. because I break them every day of the week for the last 20 years. <laughs> Well, you've said about the podcast now on this podcast, so my listeners will be holding you to it. Oh, no, I'm definitely going to. an incentive. I'm definitely, <laughs> I've even got a few angles as to what I should do, and it's kind of not the usual kind of one on that. So I will do something. It's definitely going to happen. And I've even done, I'm not going to say pilots, but I've done ideas. And yeah, I did. Now, I could have given you this exact answer six months ago, though, as well, because those ideas <laughs> were done last summer. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I'm going to do yeah, that. actually, that is a good point. Like what what kind of propelled me into just getting into stand up was because there were so many other female comics I was seeing that were making the jokes that I was like, I came up with that. And then it just right. kind of you're like, OK, that's the kick up the arse I needed. And you just do it. Yeah, otherwise, get, someone else going to do it. Yeah. But to get up and do it in front of anybody at all cheapers, like that's one I, got, I wouldn't be doing that. I wouldn't be able to do that. <laughs> everyone can do it. I think everyone has a good five minutes in them. But, well, but look, I mean, you, that can be after the podcast. <laughs> yeah, and, no, in one way, everybody can do anything. You, you are right. I mean, if, as I said earlier, if I can jump out of an airplane, anybody can really do anything. Because, like, <laughs> you know, I am not the kind of adventure sports type of person, and I won't be bungee jumping or any of those things. I couldn't be bothered. But, um, yeah, you can really you'd be surprised. It's like... I say to people, anybody can do the radio, you know, on a regular basis. And you really can. Like, I mean, anybody could do it. you just got to do it for four or five days. Then you can do it for 4,000 or 5,000 days. It's not that difficult. And in fact, more people are proving that anybody can do it. Because some of the stuff I hear now is so bad. They're like, Jesus, any, anybody can do the radio. I know, you know what I mean? I mean, really, like, and the mystique is gone. I mean, think about it. Do you ever see the movie The King's Speech? The one yes, about, yeah. yeah. Okay. And like at the very beginning, before uh, the king was to go on and talk, who's got a stutter, and that's what it was kind of all about. And Geoffrey Rush, Rush was teaching him not to have a stutter. And uh, the very beginning, you see this guy kind of the first, the opening of the movie, and he's he's dressed in a tuxedo and he does everything and lays something out of the thing with a little cloth and has his glass of water and that. And then he's sort of it's his time to say something, so he says it, and all he says, "This is the BBC," and like. That's all he says. Like, I mean, that was so like, oh, my God, he's on the radio doing this, you know. So nowadays, <laughs> and with 5,000 stations out there, like, you look what's happened, especially on nighttime radio these days. Wow, it's kind of about as un-PC and as unwoke as you can get. So, like, you know, everything changes and shows mm-hmm. everybody can do it, you know, and they do. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. First time you cracked on. I mean, you don't have to answer this. Cracked on is like your first kiss. Right. Well, it wouldn't be first kiss as much as it'd be um, first time I cracked on. It'd be more, it'd be more a school, a school thing. Like, I'm not sure if this is what you mean, but I remember when I went to national school and that would be between the ages of four and seven, I suppose. And then I went to a different national school and the different national school. Well, that was Mount Marion to Kilmacud and Kilmacud the first few days. It was just like... An apocalypse. It was the, it was like hell. It was just in the middle, particularly even when you get out to play, everybody out in this yard, it seemed to be beating the shit out of each other right across the board. It was just mental. Oh, there was one football and there was like 17 guys chasing it all the time. And it was just mad. Like it was way too heavy for a little nice boy like me. And I was like, <laughs> I couldn't, I couldn't get it at all. And uh like, again, no choice. You're at school. That's it. Nobody's going to listen to you complaining. And you got over it and it was fine. You know, I must mm-hmm. say, I did actually find that school quite tough, actually. And then secondary school comes along later at the age of 12 or 13. And that was simple. But, uh, mm. you know, you just had to do it. Like, at seven or eight, it's asking a lot, really, for somebody who, you know, was not used to the, literally, the rough and tumble. And I mean rough and I mean tumble. And it was like, and also the teachers didn't give a damn about you unless they want to hit you. Because in those days, they were allowed to do that. But that part of it didn't worry me as much as the whole just the whole environment. Yeah. But I mean, you know, does, does that answer a question to say I cracked on? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. another perfect example. Yeah. But then again, I had it. no choice. 
Well, yeah, I know. That's the problem with cracking on, really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you just got to do it. Yeah, yeah I exactly. Mean, every, like, I mean, in, in another way, you could say it happens all the time. There's always something. There's always some kind of obstacle in your way. Mm-hmm. And you just, you know, the, you, you know you're better off. I, you know, sometimes it's better to avoid it. Sometimes it's better to go home early or whatever the phrase is. <laughs> but, uh, no, but I mean, other times you just have to do it, especially when, like, in the job-wise, when the end result is going to be so good because it's just great fun after a while, you know, once you get used to it. Or once you don't mind making a fool of yourself. That's really Yeah. Did you have any jobs? So I know that you got into radio, like, really young, but did you have any kind of, you know, shite jobs that you kind of hated before that? No, I mean, like I had, like obviously I had summer jobs and stuff that I did for ages, but knowing that they were going to end, it was never that bad. Like when you were in the 70s, when you went to college, um, most people tried to go away or tried to go to London and make beds and hotels and stuff and all that sort of stuff. I went to Germany to factories to work. I made one million hinges for BMW cars in a three month period in uh near Dusseldorf, where like it's a flat piece of metal and then eight machines later, it's a hinge. And there's about 35 hinges. I bet you didn't know that in your average Mercedes. <laughs> I didn't. But like that was a difficult one because it was a big steel pressing factory and that was not easy, you know. But um, then I worked at a fairground in Boston or near Boston. And that was a bit of a laugh for a whole summer and that kind of thing. But um, no, oh yeah, other jobs. I mean, like I, I remember I got a job once on a farm. I couldn't find the place. It was in a place called Beliver in County Mead. But I was, we were looking for Ballyvar. And we, the people didn't know what we were talking about. We went there and we had to pick up stones from a f- from fields before the combine harvester would get there two minutes later so that it wouldn't wreck the blades of the combine harvester. It was the worst job you could possibly imagine. <laughs> it was awful. Myself and a guy called Mark Suttle. It was terrible. And um, But anyway, like jobs-wise, no, because you see, the thing is that, uh, like I went to college and like you know the way you're in college and it's going fine and you'll do anything to stay in college. So like I did a BA and then I, um, I said, oh, I'll do the H-step in education. So I came out as a kind of, what do you call it, a qualified school teacher. And I was going, yeah, fine. I mean, I'm not so sure if I want to do this. But I mean, like, I'd rather be a pirate on the radio and give that crack for a while, which I did. So I kind of went straight from one to the other. Well, actually, there was a bit in the middle where there was a rock magazine that I became the editor of, which is the most ridiculous story. There was an ad in the paper saying, the editor wanted for C. And I used to buy the magazine. And I just went for the laugh. And I got it because nobody else went for it. Because all the other guys went off to form a thing called Hot Press. And that, so I, I did scene for about a year. And that's how I got into radio as well, which is really all I ever really wanted to do. Not that I knew or could ever have been in a position to be able to do it, because there was only, like, illegal radio. There wasn't even legal radio when I started, really, at all. Nobody had heard of anything. And there was no other stations except this Radio Dublin thing, which, again, nobody really listened to. So it was all kind of, like, it was the luckiest thing in the world because of timing. Everything is timing. you got to have luck. And that was completely 85% of it. So it all just happened at the right time. Someone or something that always cracks you up. So oh. obviously you love The Office. What else is there? I mean, it can be anything. It can be, you know, it doesn't have to be necessarily a TV show. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I suppose you could say, like, when any one of your kids is sort of two years of age and whatever they do is funny, like whatever they do or that kind of thing, you know, it's just you just find yourself laughing, and even the way they walk. But uh, I don't know, like, anything that cracks me up. Um, yeah, I don't. I mean, one of the, this is not something you want to hear necessarily. I don't necessarily find that stand up makes me crack up. No, seriously, I don't. I don't like, I mean, like I go to a gig and I enjoy that and I know what it is, live band and that. The stand-up part of things, I'm not as into it as this like last two generations have been for the last, like, you know, this alternative comedy thing didn't really kick in until the late 80s, like as opposed to um, the kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the stuff that would be on in hotels like with Hal Roach and uh, Irish people like that doing typical old-fashioned comedy with mother-in-law jokes and all that kind of thing, you know? But um, like the alternative or whatever it's called, I can see how it's funny. I've laughed at an awful lot of things, but I don't necessarily get the same thing watching that live as I would, you know, the music or, you know, the football or whatever. But um, at the same time, I'm just trying to think. I mean, like it would be that something like 
the office, I have to say, I mean, I know I kind of, it's just, I don't know what, it, like the really weird thing is I've never seen the American office and people tell me it's really funny. Like that's really is very good. Mm, and I just, yeah. I, I, I just don't know it. And also I love the fact that the office never had a laugh track. So there was, it wasn't like friends telling you when to laugh every 10 seconds. And, um, but it's just, there were so many different bits about it. And also as a love story between the other two and it was just one of the greatest love stories I've ever seen on TV. It was just fantastic, especially towards the end when Don, like, I mean, we heard that Ricky Gervais did two series, six and six, and then uh, they were going to do a, what do you call it, um, a Christmas special or something or an extra two program. And oh no, they're going to blow it. They're going to blow it. Leave it as it is. And it turned out to be brilliant. But just when the taxi stops and Don gets out from your man, it's just fantastic. But anyway, it's funny is the point about it is the whole thing is really funny, the whole concept. Because also when I saw it first, I'd never heard of it. I was I came across it one night and genuinely for about eight or 10 minutes, I thought it was a documentary. I had no idea what this thing was. So like, yeah, that's another thing, discovering something while it's happening for the first time, it's just fantastic. And you feel it's yours, you know. Did um, you watch it as it was on TV or was yeah. it like, okay, no, oh, I watched wow. it as it was on TV, yeah. That's I mean, amazing. I just came across, I had no idea what it was. It's like the best thing I've seen in the last 10 years, no question about it, is Succession. I've watched every program twice and I find myself laughing at a lot of that because some of the script is so good. And I really do find that very funny. And that kind of thing, even though it's, it's much more than just funny, there's so much going on there. But um, Succession is amazing. And I'm so delighted they're doing a third series as we speak. And they should have that sometime, but I don't know, maybe early next year. But um, yeah, no, I mean, like, I don't know about that. I can't even remember what it was now. What, what was that? Oh, yeah, no, I mean, you've answered the question. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Um, a time you cracked under pressure. Um, oh, I never crack under pressure. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, if I ever say I'm going to do something, I have to do it. I just do it. And like, I'd never give in. Um, I always remember, like, as I say, I went to London every single week for 10 years and either to do like, you know, the Channel 4 programs. I worked on Virgin Radio for the first two years of it with, with Branson actually rang me and asked me. And I did that for two years, three years in the in the mid 90s. So I was going all the time and I used to have to go over and do the interviews for movie show stuff. And like I would seldom turn down in New York or in L.A. now, I'll tell you. But I mean, I remember one time I was to do Kurt Russell and uh, I kind of um, woke up the next morning and I just like I can't believe I actually like let the film company down because I was always pretty good. I just said, I just can't do it. I just can't go to the airport and get another plane and be circling over Heathrow because I'm suffering from overhead bin syndrome. I'm just dreaming of the second thing. I hate it all, you know, and uh, I just said, look, I don't need it for the program. That was the big thing. It's not it wasn't needed. And I just didn't go. And it didn't matter because like, out of like 200, I only turned down one. You know what I mean? Or I only didn't arrive for one. But because uh, also I had a real routine going, I knew exactly how to do it. I'd always be asked to be one of the first interviews. And I'd go at seven in the morning and I really was back home by four o'clock. And I'm a bit of a home bird. I like being home. Mm. I quite I, I like to go to London, but I hate if I get, I was doing Virgin Radio once and we used to be, I used to be on, there was uh, Chris Evans was 10 to 2 uh, doing a program called The Big Red Mug. That's 10 o'clock till 2 o'clock on a Saturday. And then I was 2 to 6 or 4 to 8. And the 4 to 8 was dodgy trying to get the last flight home. So it wasn't always possible to sort of mm -hmm. make it. And I remember one time I missed it. And it was just like I booked into a hotel near Earl's Court or something because I nearly got there, but I knew I couldn't. And I just said, oh, God, I don't want to be here. I said, I like being home. But the idea of being back home in Dublin with a pint in front of me in a pub at 11 o'clock, having done the work that day in London, it's just such a great feeling, you know, and that was blown that weekend. So they weren't very good ones. But I mean, I never, um, I always did what I had to do because I said I'd do it. Simple yeah. that. Yeah, more or less. That's anyway. great. Mm. Wow. Um, Okay, so a thing I like to kind of finish the um, the podcast with is, and I, I don't know how much you will be able to answer this, but I love reality TV. So I like to ask everyone who their favorite reality TV star is. Do you have okay. some? I would, I, would, I, would, I would guess from the way you asked me that you know I wouldn't really know. First of all, I don't even know basically what reality TV half the time is. Um, I, I, I have to be honest, Mairead. 
I, to have a favourite, you have to know it. I have no idea. I wouldn't know anything about Like, I've, have I seen I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here? Yeah, there was one series I saw a few of because somebody else was here watching it. Um, uh, I remember, um, oh, God, what's his name? Uh, Razor Ruddock, who was a footballer, was in it. And uh, Lord, somebody or other, I don't know, I can't remember. But uh, I don't know anything about that. I mean, there's other ones. Is X Factor a reality TV show? I suppose it is. Yeah, and, kind of. Yeah. yeah. I don't even know what a reality TV show is. Is it cooking programs? Are they reality TV? Yeah, I guess like the reality TV that I love is like Real Housewives and like, you know, I've the proper trashy stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember one that I was fascinated by for a few programs, which was um, mothers in America used to send their daughters in to be beauty queens. I've no idea what the program was called or anything, but uh, oh. it was really quite strange. Just to, Because like in the same way, as fact, yeah, I'd come across some things and I was watching there. I've watched three episodes once of, it's just fantastic, of um, extreme couponing where they all, um, you know, get so many coupons. Then they bring them to the supermarket and buy 400 quids worth of food they don't need and they only have to pay $4 because they've got so many coupons. And then they have a special kind of bunker built in their house with like 19 rows of beans on it and, you know, like cornflakes and stuff. And it's really like the saddest people in the world. And there's one also on the channel where man versus food where a guy has to eat like a hamburger the size of, you know, I don't know, whatever. It's just it's just ridiculous. <laughs> so like the matter, the better. But I don't know if they're reality shows. And like well, there was. I'll take that as an answer. That's okay. Fine. okay. Well, yeah. There is one that sometimes I would get like absolutely just absolutely like sucked in by to the point where I really find it really, really strange. And like, I, I find it like a drug and I have to keep watching and it's, um, you can get them over here. Like now it's the religious stations on TV and the kind of, um, tele evangelist types who like obviously had three helicopters and four yachts and they have a little thing at the bottom saying, send in your money now. And the poor, unfortunate, mostly old ladies who are on their own, from the age of 75 onwards, send in their life savings to this absolute crook who's going on about Jesus this and the Bible that and everything. I just find that stuff riveting to the point where, A, how the um, airwaves, which I would have thought belonged to the people, the government looks after the airwaves in America, so how do they let this stuff happen? How, how could they let somebody steal it for that? And number two, just how blatantly, awfully horrific the whole thing actually is and how sad it all is. And about people saying, if you go to Jesus, you'll be all right on that. And Jesus says this, by the way, send us your money and it's, I will send you a free leaflet kind of thing, you know. And all these tele-evangelists, that's the most reality TV thing that I would be absolutely hooked on. And some Sometimes I've been told to stop watching it because it's just <laughs> unbelievable stuff. It's like it, you sit there going, how? It's fantastic. I've never seen any of this. Oh, my God, I'm going to have to. Like these guys, these guys have been talking like to 20,000 people in their kind of up your bum spiritual church of Chattanooga or something. And it's absolutely just they make so much money. I.e., They steal it from poor fools. Mm. And then it's all. They kind of go hallelujah and they all shout Jesus and it's just frightening. Frightening. Oh my God. Okay. I'm going to have to go find this now. I, after after this chat. I mean, I've seen the real thing as well. Like, I mean, I remember I went to Mexico City with uh, Jim Lockhart. We were, it's a long story that you two wouldn't play there. So they got me to go with Jim Lockhart and we were doing radio stuff and university stuff. But we went out of the countryside to this church. And it was like a Tuesday afternoon and you go in and suddenly there's millions of people in there and the priest is doing his thing and about 70% are listening to him and 30% are like flailing around the place, like um, you know, speaking in tongues and talking to some higher something or other, which is like, it's not true, folks. You know, <laughs> it's not real. It's a joke. It's mad. And it's like, it's like, it's like they're on peyote or something and yet they're, no, they're normal. They go back to their families after it. Very sad stuff. There's um there's a franchise of Real Housewives and it's based in Salt Lake City. And one of one of the women is uh, a pastor, I guess. I don't know if there's like a female word that they use. Anyway, she does all of that stuff. That's the closest thing I've seen to it. But it's obviously just great TV because. Well, yeah, you should crazy. watch the, the thing. Like it's 24 hours of like how to steal money from people and use the Bible. <laughs> 
It's weird, really weird. <laughs> um, okay, well, I think, I mean, that's all my questions. One thing I actually did want to ask you, even though we've kind of slightly, like we covered music and everything. So what is the first gig when everything is open and life is normal again? What's the first gig you want to, like, who do you want to see play live? Um, well, that's a big question. No, I'll tell you, like, um, there's certain bands that uh, you really like and then their their albums come out and a lot of people let them go and they don't really follow them anymore and that. And it's always worth keeping up with a band. I like to keep going. And, like, I think the album is always really important to me and all that kind of thing, you know. And uh, I like to see what they release in a year and that's the work. Here's here's my work, if you like. Here's my, like a sculptor saying, these are the 10 pieces I did this year. And maybe that one's not so good, but normally eight or 10 tracks are pretty good. I mean, point is that, like, bands like that, like, sometimes have got, left behind like I remember I went to see Radiohead about five or six years ago and I'd completely forgotten how good they were because the previous three albums they, they need a lot of work in some ways you know but it's worth it like there's a kind of a globule of sound if you can pull the shards away and find it it's worthwhile and I should have given them more time than I did and then when I saw them live I realised just how good they are but the best example of that was um, Arcade Fire and Arcade Fire will be on their, I don't know, seventh album maybe or something, I don't know. And they played in Dublin some time back and it was just, I forgot how great they were, completely forgot. I, I, like, I remember the last time I'd seen them was at Electric Picnic and it was a Sunday night, um, sort of into Monday morning, the last of three days, the Electric Picnic. And you're standing in a field in the middle of Ireland and it's raining. And like it's one o'clock in the morning and you're going, what am I doing here? I should be in bed. <laughs> so straight home, you know, I couldn't, and you couldn't, I couldn't get into it properly, but I forgot how good they were. So when that happens and sort of it's really special. And also like my daughter is really into music. She um, went to it and thought it was fantastic as well. So if, if, if I could go, if I could, you know, and they play in the middle, like in a boxing ring, it's really f- weird. But I forgot just, it's just, I, I, I'd go to see something like that. And I said, well, I'd go to see a thousand things. But I mean, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't mind seeing Arcade Fire again. But I mean, I'd rather see the Beatles, you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> but for now, we'll settle with Arcade yeah, Fire. <laughs> so, in fact, there's going to be a lot of Beatles coming up by the end of the year because um, the guy who made, um, uh, what do you call it, Lord of the Rings and all that, your man Jackson, he's Peter looked, Jackson, yeah. yeah, he's looked at all the, um, footage from the Letter B sessions that we've only seen a 90 minute movie from it and he's got about 300 hours worth and that is going to be something I really look forward to. It's going to wow. be Wow. Okay. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I won't thank take you, up Brett. any more of your time. You've been absolutely right. brilliant and this was so much fun. It's so nice chatting to you. And so nice chatting to you too, Marie. Thank you very much. Thank you again for joining me. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a thing and come back next week for another episode of Crack On. Crack On.